We uh, are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and um, I did want to uh, just make one quick plug uh, on that sheet, that Connect card. That's not just for new people. Um, it's also to remind you that your pastors don't have ESP. Um, we can't guess what's going on in your life, whether the, you are uh, uh, in some level of trial right now personally or otherwise, or someone you know. Uh, or you have questions like, why are we doing X, Y, Z as a church, those types of things. That's a way for us to connect with you uh, if we aren't able to connect with you personally um, on Sunday mornings or during the week. So we can contact you and give you a call. So feel free to fill those out um, and to write out prayer requests and, and write out questions. We will uh, get right back to you immediately. So please uh, take advantage of that. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the last of... Three sermons in this one chapter. It's a very full chapter, and uh, I appreciate you being here. Uh, it's God's Word is so um, amazing in that uh, we think sometimes we approach God's Word. It doesn't have a topic that seemingly applies to us, but it comes alive and it shows us that all scriptures God breathed and given so that we can be equipped to do every good work. And so uh, it will be helpful for you, I pray personally. It may be helpful for you uh, as you are personally connected with someone and will speak to you directly. But this sermon is um, basically about this thing called divorce. And it's going to start there, and I'm going to make it kind of bigger. Now, it's likely that all of us at some level have been affected by divorce. Either maybe you personally or someone you know. Um, My uh, my own folks were divorced after 25 years of marriage, and I had just gotten married um, probably, uh, geez, a couple years or a year prior uh, to that. And um, I had... uh, thought, you know, I'm doing my own thing, it's not going to affect me, but it affected me and continues to affect me and my family um, in just uh, all kinds of ways. So divorce is one of the most devastating uh, things that I think we can experience in relationships. And it doesn't just localize that devastation to us or those who might be involved with it, it affects uh, generations of people. Uh, And so it's a very serious subject. And today I'm not going to be able to give a comprehensive uh, theology of divorce. I certainly have one. I've developed one over the years of having to deal with people and, and really even process my own parents' divorce. Um, but uh, Paul is going to be very clear about uh, some certain aspects of divorce. And so I want to share that with you um, and then kind of make it a little bit bigger and apply to all of us. The seventh chapter of Corinthians where we're at, um, I'm going to break it up into a couple parts. We, uh, I divided it up. And so we're in the middle chunk now, and this is the final piece. We've gone through every verse, but I'm going to go through the middle piece at this point. And it's 1 Corinthians 10 through uh, 24. I'm going to add the last couple verses at the end. Now, this chapter provides some very just straightforward, practical, direct teaching about marriage and singleness and divorce. And historically, this is the chapter that has been used by the church as a foundation for a theology of divorce and remarriage. You may have come with your views or your experiences about that, and I'm going to. This is the chapter that a pastor would typically lead someone to if they're coming to ask a question like, Can I get a divorce? Um, this, among others, obviously. I need you to understand that Paul is not writing this chapter in this particular letter in order to establish a new law that can be used like some kind of formula to put your issue in or your particular situation that's very difficult and just kind of produce a right answer perfectly. What I've learned as a pastor, I've, I think as you get older, 
you might change, well, you do change in lots of ways, but as a youngster, especially as a younger pastor, a younger theologian, I was pretty dogmatic, pretty zealous, and thought I had the answers to everything. Then I became a pastor, and uh, as a pastor, you begin to realize that um, situations um, are very difficult, and what I mean is that for whatever reason, as soon as you become a pastor, everyone really pours out all of their brokenness on you. And I don't say that as a bad thing. I say that that's my desire. That's my heart to help with brokenness. Um, but there's some brokenness that, you know, I thought I had answers to that I finally, my, suddenly didn't have an answer to. Um, and having pastored people in our church, some in our church still, some uh, have left, through the pain of both divorce and remarriage, uh, I have found that most situations are very messy and that the right answer is very hard to determine sometimes. And so, as your pastor, I want you to understand that um, I and other pastors have the privilege and joy of being careful not to make hasty judgments as we try to navigate between um, applying God's ideal to very real situations. Um, We can hold God's ideal. I don't think we should ever compromise God's Word, but sometimes we enter into an ideal and end up facing a real situation where everything isn't just cut and dry. And that's what this is like. To be clear, God's ideal for marriage is a lifelong commitment to their spouse. That is His ideal. Now, Paul says in verse 39 and 40 of the last uh, verses of chapter 7 here, And this is where I'll begin. He says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So he pretty much gives his preference at the end, but what he says is that the design of marriage is to be a lifelong commitment. And the only requirement, if you think about those who are married, um, my marriage is uh, will be 18 years in May. Wow, long time. Um, When I uh, married my wife, I took certain vows. Um, You probably said some vows if you're married as well. And the only requirement to fulfill my vows to my wife was that she would be breathing. I should be alive. That's the requirement. Your vows might have been different, but personally, I did not write in any exception clauses. I did not say, I will love you forever as long as you don't get over 400 pounds. I will love you forever as long as you don't have bad burns. Or I love you forever as long as you always have a positive, joyful attitude. I'll love you forever as long as you love me. Never said any of those. My commitment to her is based not on her faithfulness to me, but my own faithfulness to her before God. Now that's that's a little different than people view marriage. Because every marriage that I have counseled that's in the midst of broken, maybe on the cusp of divorce, fingers are being pointed. And they're never at themselves. Now, I will say, I do not believe that people, when they get married, they say, you know what, ten years from now, let's just call it quits. Okay, 25 years from now, 
Let's plan on falling out of love, although I don't think that can happen. Let's plan to stop loving each other. Let's plan to have this terrible experience, tragedy come into our life that breaks our relationship or puts an incredible amount of stress. Let's plan to be divorced after 20 years. No one does that. The romance, the the relationship, it all starts in a very beautiful and wonderful way. But unfortunately, sometimes after 25 years or sometimes after two years, divorce does happen. Biblically, uh, in the Old Testament, divorce was allowed for some specific cases. And Jesus spoke a lot about divorce, actually, in the Scriptures. Um, And He made the point in referencing, remember, Jesus is Jewish based on his life on the Jewish law and that Jewish context, that's how he was raised. He understood divorce and marriage in a very specific way, and he made it clear that divorce was not God's ideal. In fact, he said it was an accommodation for sinful men. I'll read out of Matthew 19 where some Pharisees are trying to get him in a pinch, ask him a question the pastor can't answer. Verse 3 says, The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful? to divorce one's wife for any cause. So here's what Jesus said. Well, have you not read, this would be in Genesis 2, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He says, that's the standard, guys. You know it. You've read it. You were taught it. Genesis chapter 2. One flesh, together forever. And the Pharisees are like, (laughs) we got him now. Verse 7. Well, then, Jesus. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Booyah. Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus basically lays out God's law and says, this is God's ideal. This is what God allowed. He condemns basically the any reason divorces. Just could divorce for whatever reason I want. And he does affirm that there are exceptions or acceptable reasons for divorce, in this case, breaking the covenant through adultery. Now, it's adultery biblically defined, and what I mean by saying that is many people come to me and say, well, I think that my husband's committed adultery with his job. doesn't count. Okay, might be horrible. I don't deny that for a second. It very well is probably idolatry, but it's not adultery. So it cannot be used as some kind of excuse The act of divorce is actually not sinful. What? What are you talking about? Okay, catch that for a second. Put that on the shelf. Let me explain. What is sinful are those actions which cause a lawful divorce, namely adultery, or those actions which are the result of of an unlawful one. In this case, Jesus says, if you have an, you divorce for any cause, that's an unlawful divorce, you go and marry somebody else, you've committed adultery. That's sin. So, 
Divorce is certainly not God's ideal, but it is not the absolute unforgivable sin. There's much more context to be given as to why this has occurred and what the motivation is behind it. I don't know if you know that in our culture, in the state of Washington specifically, there is only one legal ground for divorce that's allowed. It's a legal term. It's called the irretrievable breakdown of marriage. That's the only reason you can get a divorce for, which obviously can mean anything. Um, you may not know that about 70%, and I've seen high as 90 and as low as 60, but 70-ish percent of all divorces are initiated by women. That's meaningful, I think, for us, because Paul is actually addressing the women throughout this whole chapter. And that's not to say that women are wrongly initiating divorces or that men are all committing adultery, or those husbands are. The fact is, we may never know what the reason is because the state of Washington is also a no-fault divorce state. You may not know what that means, but what it is is that there's no evidence required to prove that one spouse is responsible for the failure of the marriage. Even if there is adultery or abuse or desertion or other things that I would suggest break the covenant. It doesn't come up. It doesn't matter. You can literally, in our state, marry who you want, divorce who you want, or remarry who you want at any time for any reason. So Washingtonians are very Corinthian in how we approach marriage and divorce. Now the situation in Corinth uh, is unique in that what you're having happen in this particular church is that believing wives in particular are separating or initiating divorce from their husband. And they're probably using spiritual reasons. So they're not using adultery or what we might consider biblical reasons. It's just it's a spiritual reason which we'll deal, we'll deal with. To combat this, Paul's going to do this. He's going to address first uh, believers who are married to each other. So two believers. And he's going to give them a command. Then he's going to address a believer who's married to an unbeliever. Because you have all this going on. And he's going to give them a very direct judgment, which could be perceived also as a command. And then he's going to talk to everybody, married or unmarried, and go, here's the whole point of it all. And wrap it all into one big, beautiful package. Verse 10 is where I'm going to read. And I'm going to read just the first couple, and then we'll work our way through this. Verse 10 in chapter 7 says this. To the married, so this would be two married believers he's writing to. I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So, as I said, Paul begins by addressing these married believers. And just so you understand, in Jewish culture, which Paul is not necessarily writing to, women didn't have the right to divorce. They didn't possess that right. Now, Paul is writing to a Roman Greek church, which basically women did have the right, and uh, and any cause divorce in this culture is actually quite common. It's rampant. Divorcing for whatever reason they want, women, men, whatever. Most likely in this particular situation, in the church of God, a woman, but it could be several women, 
but a woman has risen up and initiated a divorce from her believing husband. So a believer has said, I'm going to divorce my believing husband. And most likely she's doing that for the same reason that the believing wife abstained from sex. It's because she was pursuing some kind of deeper spiritual experience. So she believes that, you know what, it's better to totally cut off this part of my life. Maybe it's even better to divorce so that I can just devote myself to the Lord like a single person. So, once again, what you have is a believer, apart from any kind of input from the church, it seems, employing the ways of the world in order to resolve a problem or find God. Now, Paul, in his response, doesn't just give his opinion. What he says is, uh, I am basically repeating the command of the Lord. Here's a charge I give, not I, but the Lord. And he is repeating this very plainly. A believer must not divorce a believer. That's what the Bible teaches. Yes, there is the exception that Jesus allows in there, and there's some deeper understanding to understand what it means to break that covenant. But the plain truth, or where we begin as a believer, ought not, should not, it is wrong to divorce a believer. Now, it's interesting that Paul doesn't take the time to repeat what Jesus believes that I had read earlier, or what he had taught. So we can safely assume that the church at large understood what Jesus' position on divorce was. It was commonly known throughout the church. Sadly, uh, we can't assume that today about the church. Uh, Divorce in the church is just as rampant as it is in the world. Uh, And they do it for all kinds of reasons, um, very few biblical. The person um, and and teachings, if you will, of Jesus Christ uh, have changed in the church culture today. What I mean by that is that just because someone claims to be a Christian doesn't mean they view Jesus as authoritative. They view him as good. Everyone loves Jesus. They view him as a fantastic teacher. They view him as a humble servant. They even will say they view him as their savior, but their lives and their decisions do not evidence that they believe he is their Lord and Master. And because they do not believe that He is Lord and Master, and maybe this is you, Christian, who doesn't really believe He is Lord and Master. Well, how do I know if that? I like Jesus. I sing songs to Jesus. I talk about Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I even pray to Jesus. Fantastic. But, When you get someone who actually denies Jesus and Lord and Master, what you have are Christians deciding which part of Jesus' teaching they will follow and which they'll reject according to their experience. Seen that with divorced people, where they're Christians and they're staunchly against divorce and then they experience divorce, not for adultery reasons, but maybe for others. And suddenly the theology of divorce changes. Or they have friends who experience some Terrible marriage, and oh, I can't believe Jesus would want them to stay in there. This isn't about what you believe. This is about what the Bible teaches. And so, we have to be careful being governed by our experience and our emotion, and even our intellect, and not the plain truth of the Word of God. 
And worse than that, and this is the worst, and I've seen people do this, I've experienced friends doing this, the Corinthians are doing this, they are pursuing what is clearly unbiblical in the name of spirituality. So like the reason they're using is like, man, it just sounds good. Like you just want to love Jesus more. You want to pray to Jesus more. You want to worship Jesus more. Like how can I fault you on that? Well, you can fault them because it's against the Word of God. Paul basically says the whole thing is settled by what the Lord says about divorce. The Lord forbids it in this situation. Period. So pursuit of any kind of spirituality or righteousness always begins with obedience. It always begins with obedience to God's Word. God's Word, this is the huge difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, a believer and a non-believer. God's Word governs decision-making and perceptions and attitudes. It doesn't begin with, like, what should I do? It doesn't begin with a gut feeling. It doesn't begin with uh, a vision of something else. It doesn't begin with anything other than the Word of God. And any claim, this be very direct so we don't have any misunderstanding, any claim, whether it be from an individual or a group of individuals, of deeper spirituality that ignores the clear commands of the Lord is straight from the devil. Period. You cannot have deeper spirituality if it's contradicting the Word of God. That is not possible. So the test is always the Word of God, not what your gut is telling you, not even what that Spirit said to you, because 1 John 4 says, test the Spirit to see whether they are true. So I've had wonderful young men on bicycles, coming to my door, telling me all the things the Holy Spirit has told them, testifying to me. And I've said, fantastic. The Spirit in me has testified that everything you're saying is directly from demon teaching. Now what are we going to do? We both have a Spirit. We test it according to the Word of God. Now, in verse 11 though, Paul seems to imply that this couple or this individual who has initiated this divorce has kind of already gotten to a place where they're separated. So maybe they're hearing this, like, oh my gosh, God's Word says this, what do I do? He says, well, here's what you do next. You aim for reconciliation. Paul's hope is always for reconciliation. And the interesting thing about separation is that, although he says he shouldn't separate, it's interesting that he doesn't fully condemn separation. And I say that because um, we know that there is clearly one unrighteous alternative for that individual. So they've separated. Let's just assume they haven't fully divorced yet. So you have two Christians that have separated from one another. Well, the unrighteous alternative is for them to remarry, according to Paul. That's sinful, definitely. Even if they fully divorced, it'd be sinful because the divorce wasn't lawful. So that's sinful. We know that for sure. What he also says is that maybe there's two righteous alternatives. What would those be? Well, one would be indefinite singleness. And the other would be reconciliation. That would be the more ideal and the hope for one. See, separation is never an ideal situation. And I've had to counsel people to be separated for a time. Why would you ever do that? Well, situations of uh, incredibly perverse addiction, situations of abuse, uh, all kinds of situations. Separation is never an ideal situation, but because of sin, it is 
sometimes real and necessary ones. And separation, let's be clear, is not the result of just a relationship that just has bad chemistry. It's just not going to work. We have irretrievable brokenness or breakdown. Irreconcilable differences. No, it's the result of broken people who are unrepentant. And there are two kinds of separation that I've seen and experienced. One I would call worldly separation. And that's really when independently, even unilaterally, an individual or two individuals, apart from the church, apart from God's Word, decide we're going to separate. And it basically results in very selfish married people holding on to the benefits of marriage, living single lives, and loving their sin. And then there is godly separation, which I believe is governed by the church, led by the church, by a family of God that is caring for two people that are out of relationship but need to be in relationship. And it results in selfless married people, even if it takes a long time, living again as one flesh, loving their Lord Jesus. That's the goal. And it is an ideal, and it is difficult, but basically... One works towards repentant reconciliation and one is just a speed bump to divorce. Now, that is two married people and the reason why they should divorce or should not or whether they should be separated or should not. Then Paul moves into, okay, well, what if you got a situation, because I know wives are doing this, well, my husband's not a believer. So you have a married believer and an unbeliever. A mixed marriage, we'll call it. So he gives his opinion, he says, to the rest. So to the rest is these kind of mixed marriage situations. And he says this time that it's not a command of the Lord, but he doesn't mean that, well, you can just decide whether you want to obey it or not. What he means is that Paul is not going to repeat something like he did before that Jesus taught on earth. So when he says this is a command of the Lord, like this has been taught before. Jesus said this, it's recorded in the Gospels, it's been taught. In this case, it's not that, well, Paul is speaking and not Jesus. No. Jesus is continuing to speak here through Paul, by His Spirit, giving a command. Paul is saying, this is without doubt a judgment of God. I am taking what Jesus said, and we are continuing to be taught through Jesus by what He's going to say here. So consider these Jesus' words, in other words. And He says here, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord... That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce her. He should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Powerful verse. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Basically, if they initiate divorce. In such cases, the brother or sister, the believer, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So let's be clear. God loves marriage. It was His design, His idea. And in calling a husband, just a husband or just a wife in a marriage to salvation, God does not intend to just create divisions. Like, I'm going to screw this up. Boom! Saved you, not you. That's not His intention, but that is a reality of the brokenness of sin. And 
God's mystery of salvation, if you will. It seems that in the case of Corinth, you've got a lot of people who have come into faith, a lot of people becoming believers, but sometimes it's just one in a marriage relationship. So Jesus has saved some of these wives, and they're deciding, because again, he's speaking largely to wives, and he say, oh, husbands too. These wives are thinking about whether they should divorce or not, whether they should, you know, their pagan husband, whether they should just basically say, well, I'm done, I'm not in that life anymore. Now, this makes sense, because in the Old Testament, like why they would think this way, because sometimes you go, that's just stupid. Well, it really makes sense in this context, because if you read the Old Testament, God spoke constantly about intermarriage and condemning intermarriage. And how you need to stay away from marrying other people who don't know God because it will cause you to worship false idols. So it makes sense that the Corinthians would be thinking this way, knowing the context that they're in. But it also makes sense on a practical level because without question, when a marriage is created and then one of those individuals is saved by Jesus, there's a new kind of tension that's introduced into the relationship. And for some of you, you're in those relationships now. We have, I know, several couples uh, in our church that one spouse is a believer and the other is not. One comes to church, the other does not. Or they both come. And without question, what happens when you save one wife or one husband in a marriage, you immediately have two people who have become one flesh. That's undeniable. That's God's design. So you have two people who have become one flesh. At some point, they're equally yoked, even in their unbelief. They are moving the same direction in their unbelief. Now you have a believer yoked with an unbeliever, and it's going to be like this. Why? Because we don't know what direction we're going. We have two completely worldviews different worldviews, two completely different perspectives, two completely different authorities in our lives. There's going to be tension. So these two people, they live together, but they approach life so differently, you start just asking some real practical questions like, okay, so how are we going to do life and family together? Like, how are we going to engage with the church together? Well, we're not. Okay, how does that work with our kids? How are we going to parent together? How are we going to agree to spend money when the Lord says to do certain things with our money, and I feel like, like, how do we navigate that? And you're like the head husband, and I'm a believer though, and we don't agree, like you're actually not serving the Lord. Like, what do I do? It's, it's difficult. It's not just, oh, we'll just do this. There is a tension that cannot be denied and should be empathized with. The Corinthians are saying, well, here's how we'll deal with the tension. We'll just be done. And there are many that have asked me that question. Can't just be done so I don't have to navigate this? It's too hard. Well, Paul states very plainly. Here's his second command that the believer, husband or wife, should not initiate a divorce if the unbeliever will consent to live with them. If the unbeliever wants to stay in the marriage, then that is the deciding factor. I say that not because it's comfortable, not because I go, yeah, suck it up. I say it because the Bible teaches it, and I know it's difficult, but if the Bible teaches it, the Spirit gives you the power to do it. But it's hard. The truth is, religious differences and incompatibility where we have a believer and a non-believer is a biblical reason not to get married. If I'm counseling young couples, 
and they're coming, and one's a believer, one's not. I say, I will not do your wedding. You should not get married. But it is not a biblical reason to get divorced. God, without question, can save anyone, but we should never expect God to move at all or to move His hand through disobedience. You'll move His hand. It'll probably be the back of it, but... You shouldn't expect like, you know what, I know I'm going to do this and it'll move God's hand. No. We shouldn't hope to put ourselves into a mixed marriage of that nature, spiritually speaking. But I will say this. Paul is very clear that we must not be hopeless if we find ourselves in one. We must not be hopeless. There is great hope. See, part of the wives' fear for themselves and for their children in Corinth is that being married to a, a pagan husband, if you will, is going to somehow defile their spirituality. And it's further complicated when Paul is teaching stuff like, well, you need to have the pagan man lead, or the man lead the home, the husband lead the home, he's the head of the home, his attitude will govern the home, um, and by the way, you need to submit your body to his ownership as well. Oh, wow. That's hard. But Paul says, look, far from being um, a defilement, he says the very opposite. He says that the non-believing spouse and the children are actually made holy or sanctified by the presence of the believer in that marriage and in that home. Well, how can that be? Well, Paul has already said twice at this point that we are God's temple. That the believer is the um, possessor, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. And therefore, uh, He is sanctifying us from the inside out. He is purifying us from the inside out. He is bringing in that kingdom that was birthed in our heart and making it come out into our members. And that sanctification or that purification does not stop with you, it seems. It extends to the person with whom you share one flesh, even if you can't see it. It's happening. It is positively the holiness that God has birthed in your heart is positively affecting that person that you're married to. And it is impacting your children. What does that mean? I'm not sure. You've got 15,000 scholars that disagree. One thing they do agree on is this. It doesn't mean that through that marriage, you're saving them. Paul's larger concern here is to quell any anxiety that they have for possible spiritual contamination. That's what he really is trying to drive home. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that the godliness of the one does more to sanctify or set apart or purify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other to make it unclean. In other words, the power at work within you is more powerful than the darkness at work within them. What he says is this, the gospel-centered life of an individual, husband or wife, the gospel-centered life of that spouse permeates the home. It permeates the home in such a way to have a purifying influence on the family. We may not be able to see it, but you must trust that it's working. Right? We walk by faith, not by sight. Your presence brings an invincible light into a dark place that 
if you allow your absence right to occur, that only allows the darkness to dominate. Not only that spouse, but the children. And this is specifically written to wives because at this time, if the wife left the marriage, the children typically had to stay with the father. So that would be a Christian mom abandoning her kids, I know it's a strong word, to be left with a pagan father. Well, how much spiritual influence in terms of God's moral law, God's goodness, the gospel, all the truths that go with that, the meaning that goes with that, how much is going to be taught there with just the dad? Zip. If he's devoted to himself, which non-believers are. So, we have a mixed marriage of a believer and non-believer. But for those who are also in that situation, let me just say one more thing. That just because you're present doesn't mean you're necessarily present. Just because you're like, well, I haven't separated, I've stayed here. Well, I would say that your unfaithful presence is just the same as your absence and how it affects the relationship and the children. What I mean is that you can have an equally powerful negative influence if you preach lies about Jesus by how you love and how you live. You are preaching a sermon regardless, and just because you're present there, yes, that preaches something, but you certainly can preach an unfaithful sermon. And here's what I'm convinced of. So think about this. Like, I'm convinced that a non-believer would never, ever want to leave a marriage with a true believer. At least one who acts like one. I mean, think about that for a second. I can't think of any reason why anyone would want to divorce a person who lives and loves like Jesus. Like, why would you want to separate you're someone from someone who's just deeply humble. You know, you're just, you're just too sacrificial. You are too much of a servant. You're so devoted to service to this family, to me, I can't handle it. You know what? You are just way too gracious. Your love overflows. It's just, I'm drowning in it. Please stop forgiving me for all of the things I'm doing. Really? Someone's going to want to be out of that? I'll tell you right now, that's never a reason that a non-believer says I want to be separated from this person. Ever. So we begin to ask some different questions. Maybe of ourselves as the believer in that relationship. What am I actually preaching about Jesus? How am I actually loving or am I loving like Jesus? Or enduring long-suffering like Jesus? Sometimes, of course, uh, the divorce and the initiation of it is out of the Christian's hands. And the spouse just initiates it, no matter how wonderfully Jesus-like you are. And Paul says that. He's like, it could happen. It does happen. And Paul says that if that happens, the believing spouse is freed from their covenant responsibility. For we're called to peace, he says. We're called to peace. And by peace... Let's be clear, because I never want to get the situation where the believing spouse is sitting there going, I'm just waiting for them to ask, just ask, just ask. You know, maybe we should get divorced. We should! Woo! We're out! Okay? No. That's not what God means by peace. 
By peace, God and Paul did not mean that we should not fight for our marriage. But he does mean that after fighting, after fighting, there comes a times when we must surrender and entrust ourselves to God. And that's okay. Many people, I think, have endured marriages where there's been the broken covenant wrongly because some pastor has told them you need to stay. And I think there is a way to counsel that doesn't necessarily have to make that as the only alternative. The truth is, we don't know what means God will use to save your spouse. If you want your spouse to be saved, I think it's a fantastic question. You have a love enough for people, maybe a love for what you might, who you might consider an enemy that you want to see them saved. See, the motivation to remain married, it's a question of where's my motivation? It's not for your own benefit. The motivation to remain married or the motivation to ever submit to a request for divorce. Not initiate, but to submit to a request for divorce is not to secure the salvation of this other person or to, to obtain their obedience and faith. Honestly, Rather, it's to demonstrate yours. That's why. Married or to a believer, you know, if you're married, know this. And I know this about my wife, and she knows this about me. You can never, ever control whether or not your spouse, believer or not, will love Jesus or honor Jesus in your marriage. You do not have that power. But you can, by grace, control whether or not you will and how you will respond to them when they don't or won't. So, we've got the command to the believers. We've got a judgment, if you will, to those who have the mixed marriages. And now we've got a rule for everybody. And he says this, regardless of your marriage status, verse 17 to the end of 24, and that will close it out. Only let each person Lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him or her. And to which God has called him. So I think he's wrapping up in one big bow right here. Married, unmarried, all everything in between. He says, this is my rule in all the churches. This is just for you, Corinth. This is for Damascus Road, too. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Or a plumber? Or a teacher? Or a businessman? Or single or married? Do not be concerned about it. Does say, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. Something has changed in the individual. Paul's rule for all the churches is to find contentment in whatever state God has called us to. Now, in God's sovereignty, when Jesus calls an individual, when he you read the beginning of Mark when he calls Peter and Andrew and James and John and he 
walks along the beach as they're on a boat. He doesn't give them some deep, lengthy explanation. He simply says, come follow me. They drop everything. And they follow Him. He doesn't say, hey, come follow me, and here's why. Because I'm the Son of God, by the way. He doesn't say, come follow me. Let me tell you what this is to go for the next three years. You're going to follow me around. I'm going to do a bunch of miracles. Don't worry, you'll eat. I can like make food with my hands and wine too. It'll be awesome. Just follow me though. I'm going to be pretty much penniless and homeless. We're going to go around. And then after three years, I'm going to die. And you're going to reject me and be a little scared for a while. But it'll be okay. The Holy Spirit will come. And then you will lead the church until you die yourself, crucified upside down. He didn't say that. He just says, follow me. Because when Jesus comes to you as individuals and says, follow me, you respond. You don't ask questions. There's a definite turn. I was going this way, I'm going this way. Where are you going? I don't know, but if Jesus is going that way, I'm following Him. That is the change. And we see this happen in the life of disciples. All kinds of guys. Uneducated fishermen. Educated doctors. Despised tax collectors. Married guys. Single guys. Peter was married. All these guys, Peter, Jesus calls all kinds. And Paul wants people to understand he doesn't just call the spiritual pastoral type Bible study leading road group leaders. That's not just who he calls. He calls all kinds. He wants people to remain in the condition in which they were called. To see that condition as something of a calling. He doesn't want them to abandon and ignore the station in their life in order to pursue something more spiritual. Whether that's, I'm a single person, I need to be married. I'm a married person, I need to be single. I work over here as a plumber. I need to go to Ethiopia and do this. That's not. He's like, no, whoa, whoa. Before you start looking anywhere else, look right where you're at. We don't need more people pursuing seminary and filling pastoral roles and finding more spiritual fulfillment in these things. What we need is people viewing their current roles as spiritual. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't individuals called to go be pastors and to be trained in that way, but most aren't. And that's not better or worse. That just is. Because becoming a Christian means bringing what one is into the service of God. What one already is. So our conditions and our marital statuses and our vocations are assigned by the Lord. See, God, according to 2 Corinthians 5, we are new creations. The old is gone, the new is gone. He changes who we are spiritually. But that doesn't necessarily mean He changes what we are materially. See, what we are just becomes this Jesus-powered version of it. And the believer stops and no longer asks the question, how can I find fulfillment for myself? But rather, the question they ask is, how does God give me fulfillment where I find myself? Where I already am. See, God has created you. He has called you. He has placed you in a very particular time, in a particular place, with a very specific mission. And the mission is really the same for all of us everywhere, but not the same place everywhere. And the mission is simply to reflect the glory of God by demonstrating the love of Christ, working as unto the Lord, and honoring Christ in word and deed at every opportunity where you find yourself placed in His story. It's not your story, it's His. 
And so you have a choice when you, when you begin to look at what God has assigned me. Whether I'm married to a non-believer or I'm married to a believer or I love my job or I hate my job or I'm rich, I'm poor, educated, uneducated, having a trial, having prosperity. You have a choice to, to change that, if you will. I should say, to force change. Do you notice back in whatever it was, verse like 18, it says, when he, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Just think about how that would work. However it would work, it'd be painful, right? So you can force a change. You go, no, I'm not going to be this. And so you pursue something that's incredibly painful because you think you need something different. You can do that instead of accepting the role that God has given you in this moment. You can also remain, I'm just going to remain in the role and just tolerate it. Just get through it. Just endure it. You know what? That's just lifeless. That's joyless. I'm married to this sap, and I, I, so I'll stick through it. Guess this is my lot. Okay? Horrible. There's no joy there. What God wants you to find, and what I believe by His Spirit you can have, is to live in your situation with a hope-filled joy. So we stop dreaming about the calling that we don't have, and we begin to embrace the calling that we do, and know that your current circumstances, whatever they be, they cannot and do not hinder your calling as a Christian. They are where God has called you as an ambassador. So let me make it a little more personal and ask you if you think about are you making use of every opportunity God has given you to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to make much of Jesus, even if it's going to make less of you, even if it's only going to be inconvenient, even if it's going to be uncomfortable or even painful. Think about where God is. We are not all in the same place. God has assigned us very specific places and people. He has brought certain people into your lives. My wife and I talked about this just yesterday, about the unbelievers we have in our own family and the way that maybe we have kept them to arm's length and haven't stepped closer to them in order to show them love, in order to reflect Jesus, not to try and change them. I don't have the power. But I can love them. The question is, how are you reflecting Jesus to the family members that only you have? I don't have your family members. You don't have mine. Only you have them. God has given them to you. He's assigned them to you, whether it be your children, whether it be your brothers and sisters, whether it be extended family members that only you have a connection with. What about what's your what? Not just how, but what are you preaching right now to the neighbors that only live next door to you? Do you know their names? And like I said, I only go over there. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay? Not that. How about, why don't you come over for a barbecue? Can I help you with your car? I notice you're having trouble. Do you love on them at all? Do you love them enough to love on them? The neighbors that only you have, the only you've been, well, I'm, I'm thinking of moving. You have them now. And sometimes you only have them for a short amount of time. The question is, what are you preaching to them? What about the coworkers that only you work with? 
The employee is the only you employ. What about the unbelieving spouse that only you're married to? That only you are married to. No one else has the opportunity to preach the sermon that you can preach to them. And I think maybe a better question is, how is your presence in their lives pointing them towards Jesus? Or for all of us, whether it be our neighbors, our families, our marriages, whatever, how would your absence change the lives of those around you? If you disappeared tomorrow, would it make any lick of difference? Because my prayer is that it would. They would notice your absence. There would be a loss of love. There would be a loss of light in their home and in their heart. Paul says we are to live in the moment that God has given us and not in the one that he hasn't. And without doubt, God has given some of us some very difficult situations. But don't let getting out of that situation govern your thinking so much so your mission is paralyzed. And you sit there, I don't even know what I can do because I just am thinking about getting over there. And the motivation for all of it is to remember the gospel. We don't love to get credits with Jesus. We love because we've been loved. It is our response to Him. It is our way to worship Him. It is not our way to obtain His approval. We already have it in Christ. He says, verse 23, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there, let Him remain with God. You know what? You can be there and not remain with God. Just because you're present doesn't mean you're present. Jesus bought you. He commissioned you. He adopted you through faith as a son or a daughter. He has placed you in a particular place. He didn't buy the who you are not you. He bought and paid for with His own blood the who you are, the what you are, and the where you are you. He knew exactly everything there is to know about you, the situation you were in, the situations you would be in. That is where He called you. That is where He saved you. And never forget this, that where you are with Christ right now, regardless of situation, where you are, the family you are in, the job you are in, where you are with Christ right now is infinitely better than where you would be apart from Him. Anything this side of hell is grace of God. And you have everything in Christ. And never forget, who, where are we with Christ? And like, what does that mean? I'm with Christ. Okay, this is what it means. We may not be here. Fill in the blank. I may not have this job. I may not have this spouse that I dream of. I may not have this home. I may not have a lot of things. But what I do have is I am forgiven. I am cleansed. I am freed. I am empowered. I am in love and loved by our Lord Jesus Christ. And my life is determined by the call of Christ and not my circumstances. So remain with God where you are. For He has put you there. And no one, no one is exactly where 
you are. Yes, there are people experiencing things like you, but no one but you is the spouse to that person. No one but you is the neighbor to that person. No one but you is the father mother to those kids. No one but you is the worker in that job. And no one but you is this person in this church here. You are meaningful. You are important. You are in God's mission, part of God's plan. I pray you will embrace that so that you can start reflecting the light of Jesus and start impacting the city, beginning with your marriage and your family and your neighbors. And then we'll see a joy-filled community glorifying God because of our call not because of the circumstances that come.